Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, everybody, welcome back to One Broken Mom. I'm very excited about my guest today because I actually had a chance to meet him back in November when I attended a two-day workshop in the Seattle area on neuromarketing. And which is really understanding how marketers and influencers can persuade people to believe or purchase their, their goods and services. Now, as a businesswoman who's always been drawn to human behaviors as far back as since I was a teenager, I, I, you know, I just, I ate these two days up. And I had noticed also during my career working in marketing and branding um, that many of the things that, um, that my guest today was going through and talking about, I had actually been able to observe but never really kind of put my hands around and made concrete or had science to back it all up. Um, but today's episode, I want to make sure that everybody gets it, is not a business episode, um, but it's actually the really important concepts behind all of this, which is how we actually make decisions and how we choose and what we listen to and what ultimately influences us, because it is related to a lot of the subjects that we talk about on One Broken Mom, and so it'll, it'll all connect back in there. And so I wanted today to have an opportunity to share with everyone the very real science behind how our brains work and how we are influenced, um, as opposed to teaching you how to be an influencer, because at this moment, there are some very powerful forces and energy going on in this world, with a lot of people trying to persuade each other in one way or another, what's real, what's not, what's truth, what's fake, you know, what to believe, what not to believe. And it's got everybody in this hypersensitive, aroused state for months now. You know, we're in, in July when we're recording this. And so despite our knowledge, air quotes around that word, and expertise in something, you'll find it interesting after today listening um, to my guests that how we ultimately decide on what to believe or trust has very little to do with facts. And so I'd like to welcome today, uh, Dr. Christoph Morin, who's the co-author of the book, The Persuasion Code, and he is the chief persuasion scientist at SalesBrain. So welcome today. Thank you for having me today, Ami. Yes, it's, uh, it's exciting. I'm a little jealous. Um, uh, he got to show me his point of view, and he is <laughs> uh, hunkering down during a pandemic in Honolulu, <laughs> while some of us are, you know, in maybe less exotic places. So uh, anyways, a little jealous here. Um, I wanted to start off by asking, how did you get into this field of, you know, called persuasion science and neuromarketing? It's actually very simple. Uh, it's frankly out of frustration and boredom in researching consumer behavior, which was my passion and my jobs as CEO of chief marketing officers of companies, because I realized that the more I was asking people questions, uh, the more I was skeptical about the answers. Uh, not that uh, consumers uh, are necessarily pathological liars, but it's become uh, clear to me over now 20 years that we have limited capacity to verbalize uh, how we feel, what we want, why we make decisions. So I jumped into the field of neuroscience 20 years ago to break from this addiction to what is called self-reported data, which is even today, uh, from what you can see, our appetite for polls and surveys seems to never end, and yet the data is not good. The data is noisy because we are still dependent on what people can articulate, and we also uh, continue to believe that we are aware, conscious, and able to report with accuracy certain states, such as, you know, uh, love, uh, fun, uh, disappointment, anger, etc., etc. So I wanted to measure 
what uh, uh, is possible straight from this organ, which I'm here showing it to you, which happens to be the processing center, not only of information we receive for advertising purposes, propaganda purposes, political purposes, uh, but also a decision-making system. So I became a scientist of persuasion with an emphasis on neuroscience because I do believe we have the ability now through technology to observe and measure aspects of that processing that was simply just not possible to report. Yeah. And that's, uh, and the self-reporting is kind of funny because, you know, it has been a baseline for data, right? You know, you do market studies and you do customer research and you take that information and you believe all of it. Um, and sometimes it does lead you astray or you can inadvertently um, adjust the outcomes by the questions that you ask and the way that you ask. And so, um, you know, and I've done this with businesses where like everybody said they were going to buy it and then yet nobody bought it, you know, and it's like, well, you know, again, that comes back to self-reporting. Of course I love it. Of course I'll choose it, but then they don't choose it, which is frustrating for businesses, um, to, to kind of get up and over on that. Now you published a book back in 2007 called neuromarketing. Um, has anything really changed in this field uh, from just 13 years ago, um, like in neuroscience or in our understanding of, um, of advertising and marketing and messaging. And we'll call it messaging. That way, for people listening, it doesn't get bound up only in business to consumer type of things, but any messages that we receive and, and how we, you know. Yeah, I like to say that uh, we forget that persuasion is just front and center of our lives, whether uh, we want to persuade uh, a client or whether we want to persuade our kids. Um, this is something we have, as humans, done for you know thousands of years. And so the field is very old, which means that there's been all kinds of competing theories. And frankly, until 20 years ago, we were making all kinds of assumptions as to what happens really in our minds. So what has happened, which is your question, is a, a, a gradual, but frankly, a very slow adoption of these uh, methods by which we can you know, monitor people's brain activity, look at the, the way they um, track visually on a website. You know, all these methods are, in, in a sense, a little more complicated, require a little more education. And as humans, uh, we are creatures of habits. So when you create so much disruption in a field like advertising or marketing research or communication research, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. There was quite a bit of resistance, uh, quite a bit of skepticism, which is uh, normal. Some issues around ethics, which I wanted to address because it is quite clear when people start seeing uh, uh, headsets that look like uh, you know, medical devices, uh, they worry about the intention behind this uh, probing of the minds. You know, are we trying to rewire people's heads so that they buy uh, you know, Coca-Cola? Um, so there were all kinds of conversations that uh, we had to address. That has been done. I published actually the code of ethics for the entire industry. Uh, and now there's more acceptance, cheaper pricing, and uh, a, a, a greater, you know, integration, if you will, of methods uh, uh, between self-report. We can still acquire data. Actually, it's quite interesting. The most reliable data you can get from people's mouth is what they hate, not what they like. Interesting. It makes sense, though, right? <laughs> it does, because yeah. we're aided by our guts. You know, the, the system in our uh, guts called the enteric nervous system has uh, 200 million neurons that directly communicate to the primal brain. And, and therefore, it's an incredibly uh, powerful communication system that alerts us to important sensations that could signal that we're just not comfortable with a situation or a decision. So I say to people, listen to those 200 million neurons and never forget that that's as much as what your cat has in its own brain. I love cats. I consider them extremely intelligent. So imagine how intelligent our guts are. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. And I want to point that out for anybody that's ever heard the phrase, your gut feel, right? And a yeah. gut check and, and not understanding the basis of that. But there is a real connection. It is a part of the neurosystem, right? Like it, it, there is a connect and, and link to the brain, which I think is fascinating because you're like, I wouldn't expect decisions to come from my stomach literally or in the, you know, in the, it's, in that it's even beyond decisions. One of the most uh, fascinating uh, recent discovery is how much serotonin we produce 
in our stomach, nearly 80% of all the serotonin that actually comes up to our brain is produced in our guts. And therefore, um, any kind of digestive issues, in fact, there is very credible research showing that taking probiotics could improve uh, and, uh, and to some extent uh, affect your mood because it affects directly your serotonin. And for those of, of, of the listeners that are not completely um, you know, cognizant of serotonin, it's an important neurotransmitter. It's one of those chemicals that communicate between our neurons, but it's the most important neurotransmitter to regulate our moods and particularly to uh, sometimes uh, uh, in quantities that people don't have to um, make you not feel as depressed, as, as sad, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I, I'm glad that you went through that and, and explained that for, um, for folks because we kind of touch on it, but I've never had anybody just kind of like break down. I mean, you can do a whole show talking about every neurochemical there is and what its function is. Um, but I think for people that do, um, you know, have depression and anxiety, you yep. know, that there are uptakes that you take for that. Um, now, I want to start then because you mentioned the word primal brain. You've, hold, you've held up. So for the listeners, um, if you want to see some of the visuals um, that Christoph has, you can go to the YouTube and, and see because he's got these really great um, visuals that he's incorporating here. But there is two competing parts of our brain that, that are working you know, in the systems that are here. And one we think is actually driving our decisions and our choices. And the other one is actually driving <laughs> that control. So can you start and start to talk? about that absolutely um, so I'll go back to my to my prop because it's probably the easiest way to do it uh, this is half of your brain so don't get too worried uh, as you see it uh, but it's uh, only three pounds mostly water and um, it's now been uh, accepted that we can look at our brain as a system of two complementary but somewhat uh, Uh, in dynamic tension modes, systems. One, which is the lower system, includes the brainstem, the cerebellum, uh, and what's called the limbic system, also known as the uh, emotional wiring that we have in our brain. And that system is very old. It's millions and millions of years old, and it's primarily committed to maintain our survival. So any neurophysiological function, digestion, um, I know, uh, blood flow distribution, temperature monitoring, but also sexual urges and eating, etc. All that is managed by the primal brain, including, of course, fight or flight responses. Now, above that, as you can see, this wrinkly pinky area of the brain is referred to as the cortex, but also we call it the rational brain because it's truly where we acquired over you know, hundreds of thousands of years um, the ability to acquire language, to do more sensory integration, uh, more visual perception, and more importantly, in the frontal lobe, better decision-making and better prediction. So frontal lobes, unless you have uh, uh, at home still someone below the age of 25, are still in uh, maturation mode, which is why teenagers and young adults really frankly have trouble making good decisions because they do not have the best predictive model in their frontal lobes. So all this to suggest that these two systems compete. The rational brain is all about analyzing data and taking its sweet time to you know, avoid errors. The primal brain doesn't want to have any time. It wants to attend and respond uh, with minimum um, deliberation because the job of the primal brain, even if you make an error, is to maintain your possibility to survive. So we've studied that these two systems are constantly fighting. And frankly, the primal brain is most of the time the winner of the situation. And we don't realize the extent to which we are under the sheer dominance, if not the tyranny of our primal brain. Interesting. Yeah, because we think because of our, our, it feels like, you know, if I'm sitting here processing this, if I'm reading this information, if I'm looking at it and examining it, then I must be in control of how I'm perceiving it and reacting to it. But, you know, what the research has shown and what you guys have seen through all these studies, hooking people up and, and examining them is that that primal brain, which we don't apparently have any control over, right? I mean, it's just like an autopilot responds so quickly that we're fooled into thinking that we're, we're in control of all of that. Yeah. Now, how, I mean, is that, is that right? Like, I mean, is it there, is, it okay. is. So you, you bring up something that um, always surprised people. 
Um, never forget that our experience of life is requiring what's called consciousness, all right? So the term, of course, is a big word, and I don't want to bring up, you know, all kinds of philosophical conversations about it. But for a neuroscientist like me, it's only our ability to be aware of an experience and to be able to observe it and, in fact, report it or share it with others. Well, consciousness, not n number one, is slow. So we're terribly slow in our ability to monitor and process information. I mean, we receive 11 million bits of data to our brain every second. And we have the ability to process 50 bits per second. So our brain is a filtering machine. We just can't process the 30,000 ads that are coming to our brain every single day. And that processing, that filtering is done without consciousness. Imagine if we had to be aware and conscious of all the things that we're selecting. It would be exhausting. So we have two lives, if you will. We have a conscious life, which is slow, and is a very narrow bandwidth that we are able to uh, observe and see. And then we have this huge aspect called subconscious, unconscious. Uh, there are all kinds of terms. But it's fast, and it needs to in order to save our uh, lives and to, uh, to build upon practice and habits, which some of them have been encoded in our DNA for you know, millions of years. I mean, we are afraid of snakes before we even do know what they are. Why? Because that information clearly has been encoded in our DNA to make sure that in our primal brain, we have that software that says, hey, this is a snake. Don't get to it. And we right. do. Right. So again, it's so the, the concept, and I, and like I said, it is kind of mind-blowing, right? Because the, the consciousness of seeing something, hearing something, and making a decision that you validate at the conscious level. Like, I chose to do this because I see that A, B, and C align with me. But what your experience has shown is that that decision didn't come from A, B, and C. It came from something else in, in there. It made you believe that you made a conscious decision, but it's really a subconscious choice. That's right. So our bias is to rationalize most of our behavior and beliefs. And, and we're really good at that. We're, as you know, always able to rationalize even a pretty stupid decision. Um, these are patterns that we have in our brain, and they get us into huge trouble. I mean, the, the discourse and the, the fights over these arguments that we see now are mostly based on interpretation, on perceptions. They're not based, as you said earlier, on facts. Why? Because facts, particularly if you're talking numbers, ideas, thoughts, just don't go to the primal brain. The primal brain doesn't have the software to decode text, but the primal brain can decode you know, five second of video. And that's why it's one of the most manipulative piece of media you can see today to shift views. And those videos do reflect to some extent that something does exist. It may be way more spread than you would think, for instance, describing that, you know, protesters in Seattle are all looters. Well, you just show me five seconds to my primal brain of people looting and my primal brain goes, well, the world is ending. This is crazy. Do you see what I'm saying? I can't, I do not have the software to elevate that consideration into the facts and numbers that I could get, you know, on New York Times and other, you know, reputable media that would give you more, you know, more reasons to come down and so forth. So we have these kinds of disconnects. And until we realize, until we can step out of our primal brain, which does require effort, which is the point of my new book, The Serenity Code. But until you can become uh, um, you know, a master at stepping out and observe some of those patterns and biases, you're going to be trapped in them. Mm -hmm. Well, and so what I th sit there and think about is anybody that's listening or anytime you have this conversation with somebody and they, they, they tell you you're wrong. Well, you're wrong. I'm not being motivated by fear or pleasure or anything like that. I, I'm a logical person. Of course. You know, you know, and so obviously, you know, other people are persuaded by fear, but that's not me, which we see that argument like in social media right now of like, you know, shaming other people for being fear driven because for some reason they're impenetrable to that. And I, I'd like to think that um, after kind of, you know, reading your book and, and taking workshops with you, that even those of us who think that we're purely logical, aren't as logical as we think we are? Of course. I mean, it's very difficult to accept uh, our flaws. It's very difficult to have the humility and courage to describe, you know, patterns of decisions or, or positions and beliefs that, that are all questionable. Uh, we're, you know, we have pride. Most of us do. 
And, um, and so it takes, uh, it takes courage to really step out of your patterns and biases. This field, by the way, of, of bias uh, analysis has, has exploded. It's now an entire field of research called cognitive biases. There are 188 of those biases that have received names. Um, you know, for instance, loss aversion bias. We all know, even though we may say otherwise, that we are going to make decisions that are motivated by this fear of loss. And that's why people divest, you know, when they're not supposed to. That's why you're probably better off leaving a software running your um, stock um, market, uh, you know, portfolio than, than your mind. Because we're affected by these emotional, you know, urges that do not, most of the time, do not uh, get supported by real facts. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about, and I know a bias that a lot of people are, are more familiar with here, especially um, in the last few months, which is the one called confirmation bias, um, which is what everybody's usually fighting against, right? You know, my confirming information against your confirming information, and you can never penetrate and make headway with two people with their own, you know, strong right. biases there. But think about it. Why, why do we have this very simple, um, and, and by the way, this explained the polarization of how we watch, you know, and consume our, our media. We tend to all fall into, including myself, I admit, uh, the trap of reading uh, information that seems to align with our own. And why is that? Think about it. Because it reduces cognitive effort. Because it reduces the internal fight to consider that others may have a different opinion and idea. And that idea of cognitive load avoidance is central to the primal brain. The primal brain is always on a mission to save energy. We live in a world that requires so much energy that we have these biases. Many of them are designed to seek what's called cognitive fluency. We love to identify, understand the situation very quickly. It's an enormous bias in our primal brain. We do not appreciate effort. Now, we can. We have the ability to you know, think, but we'd rather avoid it. And what is really puzzling and has puzzled me for a long time, it's not even dependent on intelligence. It's not even dependent on you know, age, other than this uh, idea that you know, prefrontal cortex are not uh, mature until age 25. So that's why you see, and it's frustrating, people who may have degrees, scientific degree, of deny climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how, how could, is it possible that people with, with a scientific background uh, could, could, could clash with information that comes from scientists? But somehow they are, you know, under the, the effect of biases that block their ability to see it otherwise. Yeah, it makes this world really, um, I don't want to say frightening, but very confusing when you know that um, it's, especially as you, you know, you mentioned climate change, but we're also seeing, and especially in the United States, the conflict in science or not science around just the coronavirus and the best way to go about it and treatment and, and reducing spread and all that. And it, you know, I, I would say on both sides of the coin, whichever side you're on, your mind is boggled at why the other side doesn't see it the way that you end up seeing it, especially when everybody starts to line up their, their experts right on both sides of the aisle or coin or whatever, you know, part of it. Um, and so then it makes you wonder, you know, standing back going, how do you ever get like anything solved? Like what, how do you ever get over the hurdle if, if there is such an ability to do that? Um, in order to neutralize, you know, that primal brain and get it to a place of where logic and facts, you know, can actually have a place in developing policy for us and, and the yeah. next path forward. I mean, I'm like... The, the, the trouble and, and what I see, which really affects me a lot, is that uh, persuasion is not just a message. Uh, persuasion is a message that is delivered effectively. And uh, I mean, the communication that we have received uh, uh, as, a, as a public, if you will, on the risks associated with COVID uh, has changed constantly. Mm-hmm. The, the people that we see that are supposed to carry a message, few of them, frankly, have great, you know, uh, deliverable uh, and, and skills to deliver a message with clarity, impact. Uh, I love Dr. Fauci. I mean, great. But he's a terrible communicator and his ability to, you know, 
assert a position is just uh, completely not natural to him. And so we have to stop thinking that it's all about the data and the scientific uh, information. It's also about how do you bring it and package it so that the primal brain can consider it. We have to understand that persuasion is not going straight to our cortex and give us data and flowcharts. That doesn't work. It has to be initiated. It has to be, in fact, encouraged by the primal brain. And that's what we call the bottom-up effect of persuasion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of volunteer work for nonprofit organization and help them really achieve better effect uh, because of the way the message is packaged, but the message itself is, is aligned with, you know, whatever facts or information you have. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, and that's a, when we talk about this, how we're making decisions and when we're trying to influence other people, whether it's our kids or somebody we're arguing with on Facebook or our politicians or whatever it is, um, is that we think that we have to deliver it. And I'm pointing to the front of my head, which is where the facts, if I just, if I just tell them the facts of the situation, that that will make, that'll change their mind. But as, as what you have found and through this research in your own work is you, you do have to, you have to bring it here, which is you have to almost trigger emotion first you have before to. you get to, and, and I think that, that can be mind blowing for people to think about how you trigger emotion first. Yeah. You may recall, and, and I'll go through this quickly if you, if you are okay with that. There are six conditions uh, uh, mm-hmm. upon which you can properly trigger that, that primal brain. And what I discovered, which is why I, I wanted to write another book on decoding, not persuasion, but anxiety and, and how do we get out uh, of stress and anxiety disorders using our brain plasticity. Um, there are really six ways by which we get uh, immediately somewhat hijacked by the primal brain. Number one, if it's affecting our survival, you know, our protection, um, we are constantly in a position in the primal brain to act and do so urgently. So we monitor threats and issues. Uh, that's why we get hijacked by you know, media that is talking about primarily negative news. Positive news is not going to hijack our primal brain. So yes, it's sad, but it's a reality. Negative, fear-centered messages will record more attention from the primal than any other part of the brain, number one. Two, the primal brain, as I said, wants quick decisions. It cannot afford. So if, if you have you know, binary type situations in a message, do not do this because it's scary. Do that. That's perfect for the primal brain. Don't give me three or four choices in our primal brain. I can't do that. And I was chief marketing of a grocery chain. I have hours of footage of people in front of seven, you know, brands of toothpaste. They freeze. They can't do it. (laughs) So we are short-term decision-making machines in the primal brain. In the primal brain, we believe what we see or what we experience. So if you give me a, a taste of food, you know, if you go to Costco and they put, you know, a brand of uh, crackers you've never had before, but you experience it as tasty, your brain goes, I love it. I'm buying the entire bag, right? Mm-hmm. That's the experience we need. So in the primal brain, as long as we have a little piece of evidence that's tangible, we go for it. Our primal brain rules our long-term memory. This is very, very surprising. You would think our smartest part of the brain should rule our long-term memories. It isn't. It rules our short-term memory, which sucks. As you know, our frontal lobes are affected by too much information, too much stress, too much confusion. Uh, ADHD is a major brain disorder that's affecting millions of people. What is it? It's a frontal lobe disorder, which is correctable to some extent. If you're uh, medicating, you can get uh, Ritalin and Adderall to push more glucose and oxygen. If you meditate, maybe you can reduce the noise and the clouder uh, in the cloud in, in, in your frontal lobes. But all of that to say that memories are encoded in our primal brain, not when we're conscious, when we sleep. So this is what's so remarkable. When we see those four seconds of people, you know, looting in Seattle, it's going to have an emotional impact, which is not completely processed while you're awake, but will be while you're asleep to continue to reinforce a thought or an idea that the whole world is coming apart. And that is a function of the emotional cocktail you're receiving to the primal brain. Emotional cocktails signal to the primal brain, this is important. You need to store it because your survival may depend on it. 
Number five, we are visual decision-making machine out of all our senses. The visual sense is by far the most dominant and the most important in terms of how it affects us. So anything that you have to say, a story, has to be ideally uh, depicted as, you know, frames together, that's called video, or uh, pictures, uh, and that is far more, far more effective than obviously using words and, and other ways to communicate. And finally, and I've already mentioned it, the role of emotion is critical. In our primal brain, if we don't have an emotional cocktail, nothing of importance has have it, happened, right? So when you put all these conditions together, you can see now those events that have all these six properties are events that receive priority. And those priorities make our primal brain uh, excited, if you will, and ready to make decisions and encode information we call memories. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's that's a great breakdown. And, and I remember when you went through that in the class. It's also in the book. So for people that want to follow through um, with that, and it's a it's a strong part of the training that you do. Um, I remember hearing that the first time, and then feeling kind of bummed because <laughs> the because the takeaway was the things that really are going to like zing in on people are the things that are to the point and scary, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it, and, and we did talk about that, that, you know, it, you're, when you, t- when you think about it again, when we talk about code of ethics and I'm, I'm glad that you address that because looking at it from an ethical standpoint of, okay, I will, you know, I'll be able to get my message through if I can just terrorize everybody or terrify them and get them all scared and that I'm the solution, whatever I am, you know, whether I'm a business or, you know, a politician, um, that that's how I can motivate. And, and, you know, and then also, you know, that's how, to be honest with you and for anybody that's listening, that tends to be why abusive situations become difficult to become extricated from because that abuse is tapping into that emotional cocktail net, particularly that survival fear. And mm-hmm. one thinks, how do I get out of that situation? Well, you do get locked in, in a really strange, almost like, I don't even understand kind of a way. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I want to know, besides all that, there are ways, though, to be able to still penetrate that that can be not fear-based, right? Because what I see right now is, to be honest, I follow some politicians on Twitter, and the ones that are commanding Twitter, short messages, a lot of capital letters, a lot of fear, you know, us against them. It's, you know, them against us. It's whatever. And they're the ones driving the narrative, that we see and because they are able to do, to really kind of get to the point. And every time I see them, I think, man, those guys must have some people in their staff that know a little bit about this, hmm. <laughs> you know, because it's, um, it's effective and, you know. Yeah. I, 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 I understand the, the abuse and the um, pattern that you're describing has um, uh, taken over the political, you know, messaging platform and it's, it is sad. At, at the same time, I think there's always uh, an opportunity to create uh, a good message that may uh, reawake or point to a, a worry or a frustration without necessarily be a fear-mongering message. And so uh, certainly in business, uh, over 20 years, we've managed to guide lots of companies to uh, uh, responsibly and honestly depict a situation that requires attention because there's too much risk, too much threat to the business if people don't do anything, and, and then move to the conversation of this is you know, what we do and, and how the solution is. And that shift, we call that an emotional lift, that lift from problem solution is the most ancient uh, uh, story arc that you know, most movies and books have. You know, we, we don't necessarily start the book when, you know, people are happy and have kids and, you know, white picket fence. No, it's somebody is struggling. Somebody is having an issue. And we're, you know, hooked to this idea that, gosh, what's going to happen? You know, our frontal lobe starts kicking in. We want to know how is the solution, blah, blah, blah. So we, we, we have the natural, you know, appetite, if you will, for stories that start, you know, rough, but finish great. And, and I do think this can be done, you know, again, professionally and, and, and without violating uh, ethics. And, and the reason I'm excited also about this book and what I talk about, we also now can um, 
if you will, identify and, and, uh, and call on, on those messages that are abusive. We can, we can say to which extent these messages are uh, distorting information, etc., or, or using footage, you know, of a situation. And it's, it's a lot of work. As you can see, a lot of news media are trying to do this work. Uh, but then you have companies like Facebook that say, oh, no, we're not going to touch it. It's, it's not our job. Right, and and they're being boycotted, and 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 uh, things probably will change eventually. But but it is difficult to police the ethical conduct of messengers in this day and age. Mm-hmm. There's too many messages. It happens too fast. Our legal system is slow. Our ethical system is a joke because, of course, most code of ethics, including mine, uh, do not have the the enforcement, you know, money or or body of people to monitor what's going on. And, and that's the weakness. I mean, as you may know, in Europe, traditionally, there's been more laws, more government uh, bodies that are designed to police and monitor what's going on, particularly in advertising. But in the United States, it's been the wild west, wild west for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. I, and I laugh, yeah, I, you wonder out loud because, um, you know, the, talking about our experiment in democracy and capitalism and free market, which is never, I mean, we get into an economics debate here. It's never really truly been a free market, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, how long, how much longer is this going to survive? And, you know, is this year of 2020 really going to be something that's going to really shift, you know, us rethinking some of those um, systems that we have in place? Um, which could be a, a whole nother conversation. You know, on well, it is, but, but again, it's back to this whole idea of the primal brain. When you think about how the primal brain is first and foremost concerned about its own survival, one of the biggest issue, as you can see, is to elevate the concept of public health as a collective issue, not an individual issue. And, and you have to admit that, and that's part of why I love this country, and I moved uh, here you know, over 30 years ago, became an American, um, there is a worshipping of individualism that is, in a way, uh, the, the barrier to you know, taking steps that are more about the collective. And in public health, as you can see, most European countries with a few exceptions, have acted more at the collective level. Certainly in Asia, they have as well, using methods that are a little more, you know, aggressive. But, but to solve an issue like the one we're dealing with, it's really difficult to put it all into the hands of individuals, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, because culturally, it's a threat, which goes back to what we're talking about here. That's right. You know, I've That's been taught that my, my individuality and my liberties, my personal yeah. liberties are primal, are, you know, they're primal, they're God-given, whatever word yep. you want to throw in there. And so when you're telling me something that's contradictory to how I've grown up, how I was raised, what my parents have messaged, what society's messaged over and over and over again, now you're telling me that the life I know and the way of life that I know is now at threat here, which then, again, raises us all up to this level of, whoa, no, 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 that's not what we meant. But yet it's hard to not feel that way because that primal that's brain right. is, is running and working there. That's right. Uh, well, so we also talked about um, that I, I think it's relevant here. I mean, this topic is huge. So again, for everybody that's listening, trying to capture this whole thing in an hour will be impossible. Um, and so I apologize if it feels like there may be a gap in here, but I, I did want to talk about trust because there's, um, you know, your, your point about emotional lift, let me just kind of cycle back there. Emotional lift is hopefulness, right? So we'll go back to that. If, we're, if our fear centers have been triggered, and that's where our decisions are coming from, we do want to know that we've successfully thwarted the fear, right? That we've succeeded in, in our safety. And that's where right. emotional lift then can kind of be what we, we ultimately really want, which I, and I guess I, I don't want to just gloss over that because that means if, you, if you're seeing a lot of fear-oriented messaging that's out there or hearing a lot of oriented messaging, kind of changing the dialogue is not to fight it back with fear, but to actually contradict it with hope, like understanding and acknowledging fear, but saying, but here's the solution out. This is how all of our safety is guaranteed. Um, is, that, is that what emotional lift means? Is that as you're describing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the concept of emotional lift um, in our book is really about um, creating a successful message, which is to create um, a gap between two emotions. And we do not consider an event, a movie, a book, uh, an encounter 
uh, any interest uh, of any interest worth you know memorizing unless there is this kind of uh, gap and ideally uh, a negative emotion and a positive emotion now meanwhile what you're bringing up is how do we get out of that cycle of being you know upset and 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 if not through hope if not through you know the release of other neurochemicals such as uh, oxytocin, for instance, in the case of trust, uh, the love hormone, uh, or endorphins and, and dopamine and so forth. So in, in my new book, I, I talk a lot about practices that have been now popularized with all kinds of books on methods to you know, reduce the stress and so on. But, but I wanted people to understand that these practices, whether it's to walk in nature, um, uh, play with a, a pet, which is uh, known to release more oxytocin in your brain. Uh, listen to music, which also uh, can create more dopamine on your frontal. There's all kinds of methods that we have access to that produces these neurochemicals that will fl- you know, counteract this sort of uh, bottom-up effect of the primal brain. So I, I want people in, in this new book to, to take control of their primal brain. And it will happen... Uh, with with consciousness, so it's it's a bit uh, you know uh, agree and work on your on your personality to some extent. I talk about personality. How do you measure traits, and is it possible to actually rewire certain traits of your personality? Actually, it is. You know, there's been all kinds of new you know uh, theories now around the fact that we're not necessarily trapped in who we are. We have the power to rewire and change ourselves, and when we do we can, to some extent, learn to dominate much more the, what I call the tyranny of, of the primal brain. And that's not just in that case for purpose of persuading others. It's really for a purpose of getting more, you know, serenity and, and health and, and joy, you know, in life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was one of the things that I really wanted to know was, you know, if our decision-making is governed by... Um, the primal brain and the primal brains, you know, triggered most often by a fear of survival or a threat to survival. Let's call it that. Maybe it's not necessarily fear, but something's threatening survival. You know, is there a way in which um, we can be less influenced by some of those messages, especially if those messages are, let's just call them disingenuous because, right. Yes. There's a lot of people out there, um, fewer businesses, but mostly individuals as, as we see now and um, whether they're in government or they have some sort of interest, you know, at yeah. hand that benefits from you being afraid. Yes. To be able to prevent that intrusion into us and the triggering, because it, it's not just like, hey, you know, get in touch with what your childhood trauma was and then you'll be fine. I mean, we're talking about the threat of survival is the one thing the brain has to do, regardless of what our childhoods were like. It sure. is possible to, to still, you know, make everybody um, feel threatened at some point in time. And, um, and, and if that person's intent is not you know, positive, if it's intended to be manipulative, I would like to know what, what do we do? What can we do to be less, less influenced by some of those things out there? And it sounds like, you know, the book that you're working on and some of the, the work that you've been doing and studying that um, would be useful. So what do you, you, you know, you mentioned going out in nature, maybe meditating. What are some other ways, uh, you know, to make that possible? Well, in, in the book, we, we really address three uh, functional systems now that, that need to work together to reduce, you know, anxiety, stress, and, 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 um, and, and sometimes a high risk of depression. First of all, the landscape, you know, the, the new data on how much we, we feel stress and anxiety is at the highest point it's ever been. Now, nearly, in a brand new survey, nearly 30% of Americans, 30% present uh, excessive anxiety and possible risk of depression. I mean, that's, that's on, unheard of, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah. And a lot of it, frankly, is, is because the primal brain has totally hijacked our ability to, um, to respond. You know, we don't see the future. We don't understand the future in the primal brain. We, we actually don't have that capacity to even envision beyond tomorrow. So all our decisions are cut off. We don't buy anything. We don't do anything. We, we're just, uh, you know, in the prison of that primal brain. So you need to step out and you can use the rational brain, you know, meditation, all kinds of practices that, that help what's called reappraise 
to question what is it that your fears are. I mean, there's all kinds of methods that, that do not require a therapist to kind of learn to reappraise, to re-question the, the, the source of that, of that stress. But what I discovered, and this has been kind of a new um, journey for me, is also the capacity that we have to transcend, to go beyond the rational brain into what I call the, the spiritual brain or the spiritual self. Now, spirituality is a rather new topic for me, but I've been fascinated for a long time uh, uh, at states where through either prayer or, or some uh, meditative practices, we, in a way, step out even of our rational brain. And what I've discovered is a lot of powerful literature on the power of prayer, the power of, of states that do not necessarily require you know, religious beliefs, but are known to ex be extremely helpful and chemically release those kind of uh, uh, you know, cocktails of hormones that can quite, not just the, the primal in that case, but also our rational, because our rational also can be a prison. As you know, you know we tend to, to cycle through decisions and assessments of the future and so on. So the third, the third elevation, if you will, called the spiritual self, is, is where I think we have a lot of potential as humans. So that's kind of where I, I can uh, leave the, the book uh, in terms of practices, but also science around uh, reducing naturally uh, stress and anxiety. Hmm, that's interesting. The, the, and, you know, I wonder with the spiritual, you know, the word in itself, because it does seem to imply that there's a structure and a religion to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it isn't, um, and again, that's one of those liberties that, you know, Americans tend to fight about as well, you know, is religion yeah. in this country. And um, if there isn't, you know, a way of quantifying or, you know, describing that so that it doesn't get trapped up into a, a religious debate, you know, I've, I've considered myself spiritual in the sense that yes i've practiced different religions through times it was because of family and you know associations mm -hmm. but you know there is um there is something about a um a higher sense of self and a possibility it, you know I, I i take my 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 methodology is is if you can't prove it doesn't exist i like to keep an open space for it yeah <laughs> you of know course. Yeah. You know, that, that makes more sense to me than it is to say that just because you didn't prove it doesn't exist or there isn't this transcendence or this other possibility yeah. out there that therefore it doesn't. It's like, well, no, there's no evidence that it doesn't. So why not? It's like, I don't yeah. know, maybe that's the quantum physics or the quantum mechanics of, yeah. you know. So I, I did not take at all, a, 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 you know, the angle of the religion angle. Mm -hmm. I looked at practices that come with uh, a form of spirituality that have been studied by neuroscientists. One uh, author in the space that I am a big fan of, his name is Andrew Newberg. And Andrew had the courage as a neuroscientist to put uh, monks and uh, nuns into an fMRI. Now, these are the scanners, you know, where you can image uh, blood flow. And what he noticed is when people are uh, in, in a form of either prayer or meditation, um, they manage to naturally lock certain areas of the brain that are giving uh, us the sense of self and the sense of location in the world. So the argument of Andrew, who is not at all you know, religiously inspired, if you will, is I believe that these mental states we can create are effectively liberating us from our limiting view uh, the single individual view of our body into a view that is the more oneness experience that many people report. And I thought that was just fascinating. And, and of course, I've been exploring, you know, these states in, in my own journey uh, with the, the help of plant medicine. And, and for the first time in my life, experience these kinds of, you know, transcending moments, which I can now reproduce through prayer or meditation and, and really, frankly, give me access to kind of a third level beyond the rational brain. And it has nothing to do with religious belief. It has everything to do, though, with, with our craving as humans to go beyond that, that primal prison. And in fact, it's quite interesting. Most scholars on religion will tell you that they believe the the, the popularity and the reason religion uh, became such a big deal for humans is probably to quite down our primal brain. Mm -hmm. 
That's interesting. And when you look at the centuries and centuries of, um, you know, especially Eastern, you know, Eastern religion and practices um, with meditation and, you know, it's um, perseverance um, on this planet. It, it makes me wonder, I mean, you know, we are not infallible, you know, we've got lots of history missing, you know, in humanity, you know, I, I mean, eons of history missing in our humanity. So whatever we have in front of us today doesn't mean we know everything, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, to me, I do believe that it's, you know, it's entirely possible that we've become disconnected in one way or another from some, some sort of essence that goes back that, you know, speaks to that because, you know, the, I've had other people come on here to talk about meditation and the value of meditation in terms of just calming and, and mindfulness and, um, you know, and, and trying to normalize just that practice in itself. Like, it, you, you know, you don't have to have um, long hair and burn a bunch, you know, incense and crystals to really be able to tap into some other part of the brain that is just, uh, you know, but the fact that it's there, I think is always so interesting because like it exists, it's possible. So what did we lose in our history that disconnected us from that sense of connection with our, with our brain? Like that would be a fascinating story. Like, when did that get cut out of humanity <laughs> and taken away and why? And, you know, to, to bring that back in and discover that back um, is pretty interesting. I mean, I think that's, that's fascinating that you, you went down that rabbit hole. That. <laughs> well, I was uh, not planning it, um, to be perfectly honest. I, I have um, always felt an attraction to this field of public health, mental health. Uh, my son has Tourette's syndrome, which is a very you know, complicated disorder, and I've seen him struggle with all these, you know, very terrifying symptoms of depression, and anxiety, and so forth. And so I, I really, at a personal level, I felt that this journey of how I like to intersect science to a field, obviously persuasion, because I've been a marketing researcher my entire life, but it moved me to this study of neuroscience and, you know, mental health. And that's still a fairly new area of science and and a very well needed area of science especially right now mm -hmm. yeah i agree i totally agree with that now i i guess i want to sit there you know the the topic here was for us to to be aware that um especially now in in with a heightened sense of angst anxiety whatever is going on in this world and there's no doubt about it you know we've talked about this with other guests many times you know our, our we are amplified we are maybe not entirely hijacked by that primal brain but it's really close um you know and it, it's not ending like i mean it's just a barrage after a barrage after a barrage that's got months to go um you know whether whatever you want to throw into it whether you're unemployed and and not getting any benefits or again who do you think should win the election and who doesn't and masks no masks opening i mean there's just there's so much noise out there just blasting us all hitting us i'm pointing down to my neck you know because it's hitting us here yep. um you know so i wanted everybody to see that's where we're being driven so what would be like a, a you know a moving forward for everybody if we know that we can set back and reflect on it um, what's your advice for people then if we now have this a sense of awareness that it's regardless of how much we think that we're using logic to in fact, we're yeah. starting here. What do we do tomorrow to maybe change our mindset, you know, and wake up tomorrow morning with something new to kind of consider our world differently to, to kind of help? Yeah. So I, I go back to the, those six, um, you know, properties or, or ways by which we get um, hooked to some extent. Um, and, and be in, always in a position to notice, um, reflect on, you know, an urge that seems to come from a, over, a sense of overprotection. You know, anytime you feel yourself pulled into overprotection, that could be a signal that the primal brain is, is you know, is hijacking you. Um, anytime you're pushed to a quick decision, uh, delay it. Um, so, you know, all kinds of uh, situations, of course, in, in business um, and ads are always trying to tell you this deal is going to disappear. And so there's, there's always an intention from businesses to accelerate your decision. Um, just resist it, you know, and, and sleep on it. It's, it's, a good, it's a good way to do that. Um, if you feel, again, that you're part of a, a whether it's a, a, a demo or a tasting situation, give yourself time to appreciate 
the evidence you just had, you know, make sure you, you check with existing customers, be willing to, uh, you know, do more due diligence uh, so that you're not completely impressed by a piece of evidence that, that got your, you know, your juice out. Uh, memory is, is a difficult one to control because as I said, we tend to memorize what, uh, what's going to happen during, during our sleep. But we certainly, again, can appreciate if we're very impressed by what we see uh, and, and, and in a way, I, I've said that to people, cut off your ability to see and use other senses to appreciate, you know, the information that you're, that you're getting. Um, and also pay attention to your emotions. I mean, be more competent, you know, emotional intelligence has is, is been a field of study for a long time, but the more competent you are about appreciating you know, all your emotions, not just the negative, but the positive emotions, the more you're going to be able to protect yourself from these emotional moments. Yeah, good. Perfect. Uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about SalesBrain. For people that are watching on YouTube, you can see that his background actually has it up there. Um, You know, we were talking about this just in in terms of holistically, you know, decision-making and stuff like that. Um, But I do know that there are people that have an interest in this um, using persuasion for good is what I like to call it. (laughs) Um, Whether it's, you know, messaging for causes or anything like that. So um, what does SalesBrain do? What does your organization do um, in in helping people kind of access this information? And, and leverage it for themselves. So the, the first uh, level of service that we provide is, is education. And we've done this for 20 years. Over uh, 150,000 people have been trained to our model. So we have now virtual workshops where we can help people uh, not just learn that, that science of persuasion, but apply it to their business to improve their message. Uh, we have creative services. So we do you know, videos and, and uh, visuals that can tell your story in just a few seconds because that's the speed at which the primal brain, you know, wants to learn. Um, and we do research. And so for people that want to really investigate, you know, what is the effect of our commercials on people's brain, uh, we can do that uh, for them using our lab. Now, it's been a little tricky now with, with the COVID situation. So we're using methods that are online. So we have the ability online to uh, record where people's eyes are going. We can even monitor their facial expressions. So we have all kinds of tools that give us uh, uh, the ability to do that work. Mm-hmm. Great. Awesome. And I will, I, you know, I didn't mention this to you. I don't think at all in my emails, but um, you know, I have a business book coming out at the beginning of 2021. And I actually do reference and talk about this in the marketing oh, and branding section is in, in relying on you um, oh, and persuasion code as a reference in there. So, um, you know, it, from the business side of it for everybody that's out there, that's ever listened, you know, one thing to take away would be um, if your website has a whole lot of words and not a lot of faces, um, I'm pointing yeah. to this guy. He's going to tell you that's not how it works. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And of and course, the the book is in uh, in in uh, multiple forms formats, uh, Audible and Kindle and so on. And it has a a map. I I don't know if it's going to show up, but uh, in the cover of the book, we we have a uh, yeah with this background, fancy background. Yeah, it's going I, back and forth. I yeah. have a map. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's a map. Um, of, enti- of the entire model. So we, I think, you know, want to eat our own dog food. And so the book is very visual um, and, and very much uh, looking at ways to accelerate your understanding um, visually. Yes. And if I, and I didn't bring my book up to my studio with me, and if you'd see mine, it has like all these flags in it for me tabbing everything that's in there. So it's a really, it's a really great book. Um, and what about the book on serenity? When was that one planning? On- so the serenity code is in a draft mode. Uh, I am planning to publish it in September. Uh, and uh, it's a very exciting move. Uh, it's somewhat of a pivot for me uh, to look at ways to really help more people, I believe look at neuroscience and, and you know, you. Uh, I truly believe that neuroscience is no longer for neuroscientists, that we all benefit from having a better understanding of how our brain works. And so I've been very much uh, on a mission. I'm a professor of media neuroscience. I, I want to bring this message that we can change and rewire some patterns in our in our brain, and it's not it's not uh, mysterious anymore. It's it's uh, it's proven. Uh, and so, why stay in this state of anxiety and distress 
if you can regulate and get yourself into a big bath of oxytocin mm -hmm. by having a cat. I mean, yeah, believe it or not, having a cat or a dog will modify your brain chemistry. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, of course, I love animals, but if on top of all that, they have, you know, the power to heal ourselves, it's absolutely amazing. So there's seven habits that we've identified in the book, and we bring the neuroscience of, you know, walking in nature, having pets, uh, connecting with your breath, uh, connecting with music, stories, and, and spirit. And so, so these practices are easy to follow and uh, do not require a lot of mental effort because I know that doesn't work. You know, most self-help books are never read because people mm -hmm. quit. And we, we're not really that brave when it comes to working on us. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've had that discussion many times with many people. You know, the yeah. self-help industry is somewhere, I think, around $12 billion a year. Yeah. Like, you could just write the same book over and over again. That's right. Um, yeah. And hoping because people are looking for something that just kind of makes yeah. it easy for them. Yeah, so. yeah. Quick, quick fix. That's yeah. what we want. Yeah. Thank so you for inviting me, Ami. I really appreciate yeah. your oh, candor appreciate and, uh, and uh, openness. Yep. Really enjoyed yep. it. Yep, I loved it. This was great. So thank you Good. so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Anytime. Yep. Cool. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiqueercoin.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kirkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.